Thank you. Hey, Foundation, how's it going? Good to see you. As Dave said, my name is Richard, and uh, yeah, pastor at Gateway Church. I bring you warm greetings from your uh, friends at Gateway. I'm not sure if you know anyone there, to be honest with you. I might be the first one you've met in Vicks. But um, it is good to be with you. And I say I bring warm greetings because we're connected, aren't we, as the family of God? We are. It's obvious to say that. We're also connected, as David said, through our, uh, our advanced church partnership. We're family on mission together. And um, we're connected relationally as well. So for me personally, yeah, I've known Dave for some time, and Anne, of course, and uh, Chris, who is Dave's sister, who we refer to, is a deacon in the church that I get to lead, which is just amazing. And if you're wondering if Dave is actually as nice as he makes out, I've checked the maths. Chris is amazing as well. Unfortunately, they just come from an amazingly lovely, nice family. So yeah, Dave is... Uh, as, as nice as, uh, as he makes out. Also, uh, lovely to see Johnny and Sophie uh, here as well. Uh, hi. Uh, Sophie did an internship with us some years back and served on our youth team and our worship team. You guys are flourishing. It's amazing. You were a single woman there. I don't even think you knew Johnny back in those days. And uh, you and I pretty much cleared out Bournemouth of biscuits in a whole year. That was a good time. And uh, we've known Owen and Jen for years, to be honest with you, and it's literally traveled the world together. I remember having conversations bleary-eyed in Johannesburg International Airport at like four in the morning, and Owen was talking at me, and I was like, don't know, no, no idea what you're saying, need a coffee, mate. But uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's great to be with you. And um, the standing joke, certainly for me, I'm not so sure for Owen, is his dad used to be a pastor at the church at Gateway as well. And the manse, which is now where we work from, it's my office, is where Owen's family lived. And so I think I prepared this message in what was Owen's bedroom, if I'm honest. So, I don't know. The library, yeah. I call it the library, you call it the bedroom, right? Okay, I found some of your Lego. <laughs> anyway, it's great to be with you. And uh, you've got an absolute treasure of a couple in Owen and Jen. These guys are just wonderful. I'm so glad you guys have had a break. Um, these guys have been through an extraordinary amount in the last 10, 12 years, and they've done it relentlessly and faithfully and trusted Jesus throughout. They're a great couple. Honestly, honor them as your leaders. They are just treasure. So it's lovely to come and serve you today. I was thinking about what to talk about as well, and I thought, well, obviously, at the back of that, you talk about, I don't know, partnership in mission or relational values and that sort of thing. All of those are, of course, very important things. And then I thought, you know what? Nah, just talk to me about Jesus. That's what I'm passionate about. That's what connects us. Jesus is our savior. He's our king. He connects us. So that's, that's what I'm going to do today. And, uh, and my hope is that this builds on all the excellent work that you're already doing here, building together, building a gospel community, growing in love for God day by day, and uh, seeing the glory and the beauty and the power and the majesty of King Jesus as we behold him and take time to consider him and turn our faces towards him and cast our eyes on him. So with that in mind, I'm going to be speaking out of the book of Revelation, specifically Revelation 1 verse 12 to 18. And I've called this talk, as it says up behind me, all eyes on Jesus, because that's what I want to encourage you in today. I don't know if you've ever done one of those um, word association games where someone says a word and then you've got to give the first thought that comes into your mind. I think sometimes when you think about the book of Revelation, particularly if you haven't got a church background or a Bible background, and you don't have a framework for understanding its biblical relevance, which is very true for me until, I don't know, 20 odd years ago, some of the first thoughts that come to mind maybe of, I don't know, terrifying beasts. I don't know, you tell me, what, what kind of things do you think of? First words that come to your mind when you think of Revelation? 
Chris, you're exempt from this, because I know you've <laughs> thought about it a lot. What kind of words do you think of when you think of Revelation? I'll take anything. End. End. Good. End times. Yeah, anything else? What was that? Horsemen. Good. I like that one. Yeah, okay, now we're getting a little bit weirder. Anyone else? <laughs> Beasts. Yeah, exactly. So I think... Certainly, when I came to faith, if someone talked to me about the book of Revelation, I would have thought about those things. Terrifying beasts with horns and supernatural horror films and Armageddon and 666 and the mark of the beast and the Antichrist. I actually asked my 15-year-old daughter a few days ago what she thinks about, and she said, fire, trumpets, and scary angels. Go figure, I like that. Which is a whole lot better in terms of our family discipleship than a few weeks prior when I said to her, who wrote the book of uh, Philippians? And she went, was it Phil? I was like, no, definitely wasn't. Anyway, this talk isn't going to be about any of that scary stuff. Uh, That's all very important material, actually. But uh, the word revelation, it's taken from a Greek word, apocalypsis. It's where we get the word apocalypse from. And this is important because that word's often used as a kind of a scary word. But the word apocalypse simply means uncovering or unveiling. And uh, the whole book of Revelation is an unveiling. It's an uncovering. It's a peek behind the curtain written in a very particular style, which would have made sense to the people of the time, of the reality of what's going on in God's plan as human history plays out. One, one writer describes the, uh, the Revelation, the apocalypse, like this. He says, it's a vision of heavenly secrets that can make sense of earthly realities. It's like God says, ta-da, I'm in complete control. Look, this is how it's all working out. And therefore, this is how you and I can stand firm in light of world events, especially when those events seem terrifying or oppressive to you. And so I want you to be afraid, uh, sorry, I want you to be confident and not afraid of approaching this book. It's full of encouragement, and full of faith for the Christian life. It's one of my favorite books. And its central message, it's one of its central messages, is to overcome. That word appears again and again in the book of Revelation. To the one who overcomes, I make this promise to you, Jesus says. The Greek word for that word, for overcome, is Nike. It's a a bit like the the shoe. It's named for the the Greek goddess Nike, the goddess of victory. And I find that helpful when I come to this book. It's It's about Jesus. It calls us to be overcomers because in all that Jesus is and in all that he's doing, we have victory. That's evident from the first five words of this book, which say this. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a a revelation, an apocalypsis, an unveiling, and it's given by Jesus, and it's all about Jesus as well. And that's why I've chosen these words to speak from this afternoon. At a time like this in human history, when things can seem increasingly confusing and completely out of control, and when it might seem that Christianity is perceived by some as less and less relevant. Stats out this week saying less than half people in the UK now believe in God, lowest stats ever. We need to remember, brothers and sisters, what this book teaches. Jesus is in complete control. He fights our battles. He calls us to overcome what life 
gives us. And he shows us the way of victory through life in him and all that he is and all that he has and is doing. And therefore, that he has a plan that is unfolding exactly as he would have it. And it involves you and me. Now, the backstory to these verses that I'm going to speak from is that John, who wrote the book of Revelation, who is one of the 12 disciples, he's been exiled, he's been kind of outcast by the Roman authorities to a tiny island called Patmos, which was a prison island. It was a bit of a pest to the Roman Empire, so they just removed him. And, uh, and John and the other Christians in the Roman Empire were clearly not strangers to hard times. All of John's mates, the other 11 disciples, had all been killed. And this fragile early church in Rome had come under the scrutiny of the evil, deranged, bloodthirsty Roman emperor, a guy called Emperor Nero. Christians in the Roman Empire on that day were, were, just, they were just poor and destitute outsiders. They were kind of seen as an obscure offshoot from Judaism. But they spoke of a new kingdom and of a coming king. And this obviously rattled uh, Nero, who saw it as a threat to his emperorship and, uh, and to his empire. In the summer of AD 64, a huge fire broke out in Rome that burned for six days and it consumed almost three-quarters of the city. Some people actually think that Nero himself started that fire, but that's speculative. Needing a scapegoat, Nero blamed what he considered a rebellious new cult, the Christians. And so he rounded up as many Christians as he could, and he tortured them uh, in the most brutal way. He covered them in animal fur, and he fed them to wild dogs and lions. And at night, he impaled them, and he set fire to light up the city. It was really the most brutal spectacle, the most awful persecution. It's important for us to know this stuff, because we stand on the shoulder of those who've carried the faith through that sort of persecution. One of the reasons I'm telling you this is because when you read this book, and you read about beasts who rise up over cities with blasphemous names all over them, who sound like dragons with sharp teeth, who war against God's people and of an antichrist and of Christians being martyred in multitudes, it's important to bear in mind that this is exactly the type of world that John is seeing and writing into. And so one Sunday, in the midst of all this, whilst in a time of worship on the island of Patmos, John suddenly hears the sound of a trumpet and he opens his eyes and he receives this vision of Jesus. And it's this vision I want to talk about today, because I believe if we get something of this vision into us, especially at a time like this, it'll strengthen us to remember that Jesus is supreme and in control over every situation, over every empire, over every beast, over every turn of history. He stands victorious, and he is for us as well. Let's read this vision that John is having in uh, Revelation 1, verse 12 to 18. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not! I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. It's a pretty powerful picture of Jesus. It's obviously a very symbolic way of describing him, but uh, as we unpack that symbolism today, I'm praying, and I have been praying this week, that it causes you to lift up your eyes and be strengthened in all that he is, and to know that he is big enough and mighty enough to rescue you and to help you and to strengthen you and to save you in every way. And so that's why I've called this message All Eyes on Jesus, because in a world that seems loud and chaotic and scary and often vies to suck you down into its faithless attitudes and opinions and to cause you to be downhearted and afraid, We must fight to look up to the reality of the revelation of Jesus. So let's do that together. First thing we see in uh, verse 12 is this picture of Jesus walking among, among lampstands. It says later on in this chapter that these lampstands, these seven lampstands, are seven churches, seven very important and significant churches in what is modern day Turkey. In this type of symbolic Hebrew literature, the the number seven represents completeness and wholeness, which is why we often see that number repeated a few times in this book and in this passage. It stands to represent that when Jesus holds the seven stars, he holds the entirety of something. It's language that would have made sense to people in that culture. And look what Jesus is doing. He is standing amidst the seven lampstands that represent the church. Jesus is in the midst of the church. And what is the church? It's us. It's you and me. Live in different towns, but we're the church. Here we are sitting in this climbing center. We are the chosen of God. It's the church, and this is where he is. Right now, right here in this room as we gather in his name, Jesus is with us. He is in our midst When we gather in his name, there is never a time when he isn't present with us. Just think about that. This is why the Bible often talks about him being an ever-present help. It's why Jesus himself often said to people, the kingdom is near to you. If you think you are far from Jesus, or even if you feel far from Jesus, you aren't. He is in the midst of his people, Emmanuel, God with us. And look how he's dressed. Verse 13, in a long robe with a gold sash around his chest. That's the clothing of priesthood and royalty. He points people to the Father like a priest, and he rules over us like a king. Verse 14, his his hair is like white wool, like snow. His eyes burn like fire. He has the hair of one with infinite and divine wisdom and the penetrating fire-like insight of one who is sovereign, not only over the seven churches, but over all of history as well. 
He sees into any situation and circumstance you face, and he says, I see you, I know you, I understand, and I'm with you. In Isaiah 43, verse 2, we read, When you pass through the waters, foundation, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Can you imagine hearing those words, being a Christian in Nero's Rome? Nero was regarded as a god. I was in Athens two weeks ago with a group of guys from our advanced family, and we had the privilege of going up to the Parthenon. You all know the Parthenon? Which back in the day, in classical Greece, would have been the central and highest point of the you know, the pagan empire, and it would have been filled with all the gods, temple flames, and, you know, all that stuff would have been going on. And then we trundled down from there, as impressive it was, and we, we stood down, I think there'll be some pictures behind me, we stood on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, just a rocky outcrop so we could look up at the Parthenon. And uh, I think there's a picture of my friend Matt Hosier behind us um, reading from, uh, uh, from Acts 17, and he was recounting, and man, it was it powerful, there was a point where Paul, the apostle, walked into Athens, the only Christian in town, went up to the Parthenon, did some sightseeing, and then walked down to the Areopagus where he was gathered with the kind of the leaders of the city. And in that conversation, Acts 17, the back end, you can read it yourself, it talks about how Paul would have gathered them and said, man, I see your impressive house. It's impressive. I can see you're religious like I, I am because you've got a house, a Parthenon, full of the gods. Let me tell you about my God. He doesn't live in a house like that. He makes the house like that. He makes the people who make the house like that. And he has appointed all men, all women, in every season, in all, every iteration of history, to where they are so that people will inquire on God. You and I could have been born in the 18th century, the 15th century, the 1st century. God, who appoints the times and the seasons, has decided that you and I should be in this room together, born in this time in history, working together, worshipping together, loving Jesus so that people might come to know him. Yes. Man alive, the sense of, of importance, not self-importance, but the sense of importance that Jesus places on his church is significant. Yes. And then Paul finishes his little um, diatribe with the, uh, the Athenian elders by saying, oh, and that God, by the way, he's with us. He lives within us. That's what he does. It's remarkable. Paul, do you mind just putting those words from Isaiah back up there again for a moment? Just look at them. They are as true and as relevant for us even now, even with wars and inflation and gas supply issues bearing down on us, even with G7 summits and threats from Russia, even if Phil is not going to be on the couch with Holly anymore. Top story yesterday. People of God, he is with us. God is with us. Verse 15, it says... His feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, precious metal that is glowing from the furnace. When I was um, a young boy, I grew up in South Africa, I used to uh, go and visit the gold mines in Johannesburg. You can do that, and you can go and view the gold smelting process that make you kind of stand back about 40 feet as they opened the furnace, and you could... Uh, and they take out this pure gold. And as the oven door opened, there was this blast of white heat and brilliant light. And then they'd remove this pure gold and its brilliance 
would fill up the room, and then there'd be this kind of thump, and they'd turn the mold upside down, and um, they would stand back as this solid gold bar appeared, and they'd actually say to us, I remember this, if you can pick up this gold bar, you can take it home. They'd issue that challenge. And so all of us, it was one hand, that's right, you had to go and pick it up with one hand. And uh, so we all thought about ways we can do it. We thought about supergluing our hands, but this thing was solid. If you'd superglued your hands, it would have ripped your hand off. So confident were they in the sturdiness and the solid weight of this gold bar that they could issue that challenge. This is like the feet of Jesus, solid, spectacular. They symbolically represent his purity and his power and his steadiness and his solidity. This is not someone who can be pushed over by anything. In the Bible, the word for glory, which is so often used of God, is the same word as could be translated for the word weight, heaviness, steadiness, and sturdiness. The Hebrew word chavod, glory and weight, chavod. That's why there are so often earthquakes and violent geological events in, uh, in the stories in the Bible when God descends on Sinai or when messengers appear and are talked about in Scripture. It's why people often fall down as if dead with fear when they see angels and why the writer of the Psalms talks about the earth shaking as the Lord comes to us. Even at the point of Jesus' death on the cross, which was the high point of God's glory, glory demonstrated by his perfect justice and his perfect mercy coming together for us, the very essence of his godness right there on the cross, as Jesus dies, it says there was an earthquake. Matthew 27, you can read that. God's glory is such that it literally moves the earth. God's glory is weighty. Gold is weighty. Right here, burnished bronze is weighty. It speaks of weight and of permanence. It's not flimsy and easily movable. You can't just pick it up with one hand and walk away with it. Jesus is in control, folks. And when he is near to his people, we are safe. And friends, he is always near. It says also in verse 15 that his voice is like the roar of many waters. I, uh, I live near and spend a lot of time on the beach and at the coast in all of its glorious seasons. The sea is to be enjoyed, and we really do. And the sea, as I have learned through frightening personal experience, is to be respected. It's not like a stream that can be predicted and controlled. On a stormy day, the sea takes on a kind of vicious rawness, and the sound of the waves can be deafening. When it roars, it's not gentle or quiet or placid. It doesn't lie down at the threat of surfers entering in or paddleboarders or whatever. It doesn't part and say, after you, sir. It's loud and it's awesome and it rolls over the whole beach and literally overnight just changes the landscape. Jesus' words are awesome like that. They shape the cosmos and they bring things into being and they command demons to flee. And when he says live, things live. When he says to Lazarus, rise up out of the grave, death retreats and releases its grip. When he tells the storms to calm, the waves die down, the wind obeys him. When he says, it is finished, then you better believe that what he set out to achieve on the cross 
is fully and completely done and cannot be reversed. On the cross, when Jesus said it is finished, those words had power. He was saying that everything that we had done to separate ourselves from God had been torn down by his mercy and his sacrifice. That, my friends, when all is said and done, is the simple gospel message of Jesus Christ. Salvation and new life in him is a simple case of believing that God desires relationship with you, and in spite of us walking away from him and saying, no thank you, walking away from his light and life and taking the path of death and darkness, he has still made possible salvation for you by sending Jesus Christ, God the Son, to die on the cross. And the invitation to you is simple. Repent. Turn around. Get back on the path and walk towards him and believe. That's the gospel, freely available, any moment of the day to you. If there's any part of that you'd like to understand better or need me or one of your leaders to slow that down for you so you can just receive it and believe it, just ask after the service because it's the most important message you will ever hear. And the hearing and the believing of that message is the whole shooting match insofar as it pertains to our faith. I believed and received that message 24 years ago in a flash as I drove my little white car through the streets of Birmingham driving away from the most messy, broken relational situation covered in pain and sin and shame and self-doubt and meaninglessness. And in a flash, as I believed in Jesus Christ and repented of all my wrongdoing through all my tears and all my shame and pain was erased like that. That could be you. Even today, even right now, in this moment, if you haven't yet, you could cross the line of faith if you already haven't. And remarkably, in that moment, you come into relationship with God. With God, the all-powerful, ever-present, King of all kings and creator of the universe. He desires you, and you could respond to that even today. And in that moment, you come out of death, where without him you are heading, and into life, which is what he offers you. Because as one who has overcome death himself, he now has power over it. He has therefore beaten death and overcome it for himself and absolutely done that for you as well. Separation and alienation leads to death. Broken relationships lead to death. You know this to be true if you're in a, a very broken, painful relationship in your own life. They, they aren't fun. They're exhausting and painful, and they deeply affect us. That's, that's a type of death. It's certainly not life-giving. That will be equally true if you have brokenness in your relationship with yourself in some way as well. That's often the way it feels if you're trapped in, I don't know, self-loathing or guilt or regret or shame. Those things don't give us life. They give us death. And that's the way broken relationship with God works too. As Glenn Scrivener famously says, when you walk away from life, you walk towards death. In all of those situations, if, if that describes anything like what you're feeling, the embrace of God is for you today. The gospel offers you relationship with God and freedom from the death hanging over you. That's the kind of power and authority he has. Let's see. In verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. It tells us later on that these, 
seven stars represent the messengers or the angels of the church, whatever they are. Some people say that they are literally angels that guard and oversee the church. That would make sense. But whatever, they represent something of the rulership and the government and the protection of the worldwide church. And look where they are. They are held in his right hand. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Some trust in, I don't know, military defense systems, some in their pension plan, some in Joe Biden, some in our government. That's fine. I have no problem with any of that stuff. But over and above all of those things, we trust in the name of the Lord. And he holds us, the church, forevermore and without threat, in his right hand of power and victory. And from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Let me quote my friend Andrew Wilson on this one. He asks, have you ever noticed how earthly rulers, military generals and so on, they come with a, a message in their mouth and a sword in their hand? That's what metaphorically military generals do. But not Jesus. He comes with messengers in his hand and a sword in his mouth where you'd expect to find a message because his word is the only weapon he needs. He doesn't need to rule like the generals of the world with the sword or the tank or the nuclear bomb. Jesus rules through his word. He doesn't come with a sword to smite everybody down like a warlord because his word is his sword, the word that brings judgment and blessing and peace and restoration with a gospel of good news for anyone. His word, friends, is the only weapon he needs, and his word, friends, is the only weapon we need. When I'm facing battles myself, I have to discipline myself to remember his word. That's why it's so important to read it and to preach to myself the truths contained therein, that he holds the seven stars, that he walks among the church, that he is dressed in clothes that represent his kingly and his priestly status, that he got up out of the grave, that he ascended the heavens, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, that he is the one who ever lives to intercede and advocate for us, that he has removed our guilt and shame and clothed us in righteousness and peace and is coming again to do away with every empire and institution and person who stands against his universal rule. And then I generally feel a bit better. Get the words of Jesus into you. Read them, digest them, sit under them in a church just like this. Write them up and stick, around, stick them up in you know, your house or your apartment if you have to, but get them into you. They are the sword of God, and they pronounce life and freedom to every captive and they slay every enemy. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is, this is John talking. This is the close personal friend of Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but I've, I've never fallen down as if dead upon seeing one of my close personal friends. Something has changed for John between Jesus, the man who went to the cross, and what John now sees, which is Jesus as the crucified and risen king, and the whole cosmos, and every angel and all authority is centered on him. It's not surprising that he falls down as if dead. 
I imagine that if Jesus appeared to any of us today in all of his splendor, we'd do the same. And that's what will happen on the last day anyway, when Jesus reveals, when he apocalypses himself to humanity fully, every single knee on earth will bow because, and this is the point, he is above every earthly sit thing. Right now, whatever is ailing you, broken relationships, money troubles, fear of the future, fear of death, will I pass my degree, will I get a job, will I afford a house one day, will I be able to save my marriage, will I be able to sustain faith in this health situation, whatever, he sees you, he knows you, he's near to you, and he's overcome it all. When we one day see Jesus face to face, it will be a delight, and it will be awesome. And there, I suspect, like John, we will fall face down and will be overcome by his glory. I sometimes laugh at people who say, when I get to heaven, I have a list of questions for Jesus. Believe me, that's not the first thing that will happen. Eternity will offer time for that, I'm sure. But you will fall face down in glory and wonder when you see Jesus. And worship and adoration will spring from our mouths. But look what Jesus does in that moment. The right hand that holds the seven stars, that rules over the churches, that mighty right arm of salvation. He reaches out with that same arm and he touches John tenderly. And he says, do not fear. That's a fundamental aspect of the gospel. Because of this mighty king and what he has done for you, foundation, do not fear. Don't look at your circumstances, your broken and bruised past, or the rulers of the earth, or, I don't know, crazy inflation, or even death. Don't look at any of it with dread. All eyes on Jesus. Because the one who stands amidst the lampstands of the church, he who has eyes to see every situation in its fullness and understand it all, he is big enough to simultaneously hold the church in his right hand and to place his hand tenderly on your shoulder personally. If you don't yet know him, I invite you to ask him to place his hand on your shoulder and to speak life and freedom to you. He says to you, do not fear. How is that? Well, let's read on. I am the first and the last, he declares. I was there at the beginning. I've seen it and determined it all. I've seen the end and I've been alongside you all the way in between as well. And I can say to you, nothing in this world can overcome you or take you out of my right hand. Therefore, fear not. And then possibly one of the most significant statements that Jesus ever makes, verse 18. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. In order to bring life to us, the living one died. He tasted death. For three days, he lay in the tomb, and then he rose up to life again. If you were a Roman Christian in those days, or a Christian at any time facing, I don't know, persecution or, faith, or death for your faith, those words are life-changing. He has been there. He was dead, but he is the living one, and now he lives forever and ever, and therefore, he now declares victory over death. And he says to you, because of that, do not fear. Death isn't in control. Death isn't the boss. Death doesn't call the shots. As Owen reminded us earlier on, if our God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8 asks us that. Not, it tells us, not trouble, 
not hardship, not persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword, neither death, or life, or angels, or demons, or the future, or the present, not the cost of living, not the threat of war, not our impending doom, I don't know, AI gone rogue, Paul didn't say that, I did. There is no powers, no height, nor depth, nor anything at all. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus or bring any charge against us. This is why. This is how he can claim to be the living one. He says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has the keys. Keys open doors. I couldn't get into my house without my keys. And those keys let people in and they let people out of my house. Jesus has the keys. He can open the doors to death and Hades any time he likes and say, come out. He's done it before. Lazarus, come out. And when he has led you out of death, nobody can put you back in. We sung this earlier on. Remember those giants, sin and death? I think those were the lyrics. Death could not hold him. He has silenced the boast of sin and grave. This isn't just a sing song. These are sermons we're singing. I remember one day uh, in Johannesburg, in, uh, it's about 1992, it was kind of a really tricky time uh, just before the official fall of apartheid. I was walking down kind of the main street, a bit like Oxford Street in London, in Johannesburg, and I heard this, I, just, I kind of became aware that suddenly I was by myself on the street, there was no one around, I was like, where did everyone go? And then I heard this buzz in the distance, and I couldn't quite work, work out what the buzz was. And then I thought, ah, well, maybe it's a swarm of locusts, we occasionally get that kind of thing. And then what became apparent quite quickly was that there were something like 140,000 toy-toying ANC supporters. So toy-toying is like when you've got a big stick and you're bashing the ground. And I had no idea what was going to happen. There was all these guys coming towards me, demanding freedom for Mandela and so on. And I found myself alone on the street, and I was terrified. And in that moment, not knowing what would happen, suddenly this door opened in a building next to me, and someone said, get in. And I went in. And we watched as these guys marched down the roads, and it was terrifying. And I remember thinking, as I was uh, preparing for this, that person opened a door and, and possibly saved my life. I, it brought me into a place of refuge and safety. And I believe he wants to say this to you as well. He, he has access to all the doors for you. He can open the doors of any prison that you find yourself in, and he can open the doors to life and freedom and peace in its abundance. That's what having access to the right door can do. And Jesus has keys that access the doors of death and Hades. He has the keys to the kingdom of heaven for you. Jesus has the keys. Whatever your situation today and wherever in your journey and experience with Christ you find yourself, this is the reality and the offer and the choice in front of you as today we turn our eyes to him. There are three things. He rules. He rules over all history, over all creation and over every single circumstance in your life. He is solid, secure, trustworthy, faithful, He's beaten the foe of death, and he sees you. He holds the present and the future, and he holds the church, and he knows the end. It's been apocalypsed to us. And if you know and are in Jesus, it's a very good place to be. To paraphrase, I don't know if you've read this, the, um, the C.S. Lewis Narnia books, when they talk about Aslan, the kind of the Christ figure in those books, there's a, there's a point in which C.S. Lewis says, He's not a tame lion, but he is good. 
Therefore, we have nothing to fear, because he is the living one, the first and the last, and he has a sword in his mouth that speaks absolute truth and life. When he says, fear not, so long as he's on the throne, and he will always be on the throne, we have absolutely nothing to fear. If our God is for us, who can be against us? All eyes on Jesus. And the fact that he now has the keys means that he can remove you from any kind of living death that you're experiencing, be that fear or addiction of some sort or faithlessness or persecution or trouble of any kind and to take you out of that dungeon and to place you into the land of his hope. Folks, he's got keys. He can open every door. Victory, Nike, overcoming over all the stuff is possible. Ask him, believe him, lift up your heads, all eyes on Jesus. Don't flinch or look away when circumstances shake you. Let him fill your gaze. He is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. He's overcome every agent of evil. He's tossed death aside. He is the living one. He holds you in his right hand. He has his right hand on your shoulder. He tells you it's okay. You have nothing to fear. You can come to him this afternoon. You can know him and you can be known by him. Let me pray that this would be our reality. King Jesus, I do so thank you for these verses that we've just looked at, which remind us of your steadfastness, your solidity, your power, your majesty, your might, your authority, your general awesomeness, and yet your tenderness towards us, your right hand on our shoulder personally, as you simultaneously hold up the entire government of the church. Remarkable. Remarkable that you can do that. Thank you that you are the living one, that you were dead and now you're alive and you've snatched back the keys to death and Hades and you can let us out anytime you like. Thank you that you have let us out for those of us who put our faith in you. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here today who has yet to put their faith in you, today would be that day when the door to death and Hades is opened up and they come out. And Lord, I pray that for anyone in this room who's experiencing a kind of living death, where the door of death and Hades needs to be opened up on that so that they can come out. Jesus, I pray, bring healing and life and freedom in its fullness now. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Amen.